Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. And welcome back to the Lotus Underground. This is MC Owens, and this is going to be part five of my series on the Noble Eightfold Path. And today we're going to be talking about right livelihood. But before we get into talking about right livelihood, I want to take a moment to talk about my livelihood. Um, I know a lot of you who listen to the Lotus Underground SoundCloud, um, but you may not know about my other teaching activities, or uh, you may have just come in to discover my SoundCloud. Uh, but I just want to let everybody listening know that every Sunday night from 7 o'clock to 8.30 p.m. Pacific Time, I teach a class on a different sutra. That is for the San Francisco Dharma Collective. And you can attend those classes uh, via Zoom every Sunday night. But all of those classes are recorded and posted on YouTube. But they are on the San Francisco Dharma Collective YouTube page. So you can find them all there. Uh, of course, once a month, I've been trying to post one of these uh, Dharma talks on SoundCloud. And I am trying to do that more often, uh, but we'll see how that goes. But for now, I'm doing it once a month. And this podcast and these Dharma talks are supported by my Patreon supporters. That's another um, aspect of my livelihood here is uh, my Patreon account. And so if you can or you would like to support me in that way, I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, another aspect of my teaching is my one-on-one uh, -on -one tutoring. So I do one-on-one -on -one Dharma tutoring. Um, right now, I am pretty much full, but I may have room for a student or two um, if it's something you'd be interested in. So you can reach out to me. Um, and that leads into my final comment about my livelihood, uh, which is my Lotus Underground School of Buddhism. So over the last few years, I have been slowly developing uh, what would basically be a Buddhist studies program. Um, it's a, uh, a series of courses I've designed to introduce Buddhism, introduce the basic ideas of Buddhism. And I am getting ready to do a fall series of classes beginning either in late September or early October. And those will be uh, group classes conducted via Zoom, but also available through recordings afterwards. And so if you're interested in being a part of the Lotus Underground School of Buddhism, Buddhist Studies program, if you're interested in one-on-one -on -one tutoring, or you're just interested in getting a hold of me in general, uh, you can contact me at mco at lotusunderground.com. Uh, and I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, but without any further ado, let's talk about right livelihood. Otherwise known as uh, Samyag Ajiva, or in Sanskrit, Sama Ajiva. Um, so before we t uh, read uh, from some sutras uh, to find out more about right livelihood, uh, let's start just by talking about um, the fifth step on the path. So this idea of Sama Ajiva, or right livelihood, um, 
you know, let's just kind of start with the word itself. The word itself is this idea of a jiva, and uh, jiva means life. And so this is what is towards life. Uh, you can kind of understand ajiva as uh, for the promotion of life in, in that idea. That's basically what the word means. And I think what's important to remember or to keep in mind is that when this uh, idea, when the Buddha espoused these ideas, it was uh, around 500 BC or so. So kind of a, a different culture, a different time. And so we're not necessarily talking about a job or an occupation in that way, although in the in the modern world we are. What I mean to say is, is that at the time of the Buddha, when they were talking about sama ajiva, right livelihood, the idea was more about survival, like how you sustained your life. In other words, like how you got your quote unquote daily bread. Um, in order to eat, in order to survive. And again, of course, in the modern world, we have a whole infrastructure of occupations and jobs and things like that that are related to how it is we feed ourselves, of course. Um, but I want to remind you that the real idea here is uh, it's about how you survive every day. And I want to start with that because the idea here is that the way that I'm presenting the Eightfold Path is a very um, kind of a progressive or cumulative approach to the eight steps. And what I mean by that, and I kind of outlined this when I started this series, the way that I understand the Eightfold Path is it is sort of literally like a path with step one, step two, leading to the final step of right samadhi or right concentration. And one way to think about that, and it's just one way among others, but one way to think about that is that starting with right view, the idea is, is that if one's view is wrong, if one has the wrong view, then the second step on the path, the idea of setting the right intention, well, you're going to probably set the wrong intention if you have the wrong view. And then when you move to the third step on the path about right speech, the idea is, is that the things that you will be talking about, the way that you will be talking, which should, in a way, be in line with your intention, well, if again, it's all based on the wrong view and you've set the wrong intention, then the way that you're using your voice, the way that you're communicating, what you're communicating about will be in that sense wrong. And then that will, of course, all culminate or, or accumulate into action. And this, of course, was the fourth step on the path that we talked about last time which was the idea of, of the things that you do with your body, your bodily actions, as extensions of what we talk about, as extensions of what we intend, as extensions of our view of this world. So again, it's all kind of cumulative. And to start off with, I want to do what I've been doing, which is I want to go back to a little tiny sutta 
Um, so this is my tiny little sutta from the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. And this is the Samyutta Nikaya Sutra, uh, or section 45, Sutra 8. This little sutra called the Analysis of the Eightfold Path. And I've been using this uh, little tiny sutra as my kind of baseline uh, go-to reference for what are the steps on the Eightfold Path and what do they mean? How are we to understand them? And so if we look at this tiny sutra on the analysis of the Eightfold Path, and the Buddha asks rhetorically, and, and what bhikshus is right livelihood? Sam, samyag ajiva? Here, a noble disciple having abandoned a wrong mode of livelihood earns his living by a right livelihood. This is called right livelihood. <laughs> and, and that's all we get. Um, and so, of course, uh, for this whole series, I've been trying to find, uh, you know, a very good sutta, a very good Pali sutta from the Pali canon. And I've been trying to find a very good sutta for each of the steps on the Eightfold Path. And some of the steps do have their own sutra in a way, like a sutra just about right view. When it comes to livelihood, though, there's not really a sutra just about right livelihood. In most cases, it appears in sutras that are about the Eightfold Path in general. And so the first place that I want to start uh, this morning is I want to read a section on right livelihood from a different sutta, a different Pali sutta. This is going to be from the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses of the Buddha. This is going to be Majjhima Nikaya Sutta number 117, the Mahachatarishaka Sutta, otherwise known as the Great Forty. Um, and I'm not going to read this sutta in its entirety because it is about primarily the Eightfold Path um, as it pertains to this idea of the Great Forty, which has to do with the attaining of Arhatship. The attainment of Arhatship is not what we're here to talk about this morning, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about this sutta. I just want to read the section about right livelihood. However... Before I read the section on right livelihood, I just want to read the beginning of it because it kind of um, reinforces or supports what I was just saying in regards to looking at the Eightfold Path as uh, progressive or cumulative in that way. So the Great Forty, the Sutra on the Great Forty, begins, Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Shravasti in Jetta Grove, Anatha Pindika's park. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, Venerable Sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this, Bhikshus, I shall teach you noble right samadhi, concentration, with its supports and its requisites. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, venerable sir, 
The bhikshus replied, and the Blessed One said this, And what bhikkhus is noble right samadhi, right concentration, with its supports and its, its requisites? That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, and right mindfulness. Unification of mind equipped with these seven factors is called noble right samadhi, or concentration, with its supports and requisites. And then the sutra goes on with a section regarding right view, and then a section regarding right intention, and then a section on right speech, and then a section on right action, leading to the section on right livelihood. And each of those sections, by the way, they all begin the same way, which is, and therein, bhikshus, right view comes first. And how does right view come first? One understands wrong livelihood as wrong livelihood, and right livelihood as right livelihood. This is one's right view. So that sort of is a repeat of the tiny sutta that we just read, which, you know, is sort of not the most helpful definition of right livelihood, which is to say, well, it's not wrong livelihood. So that doesn't always help us out. And so the sutta, the great 40 sutra I was just reading from, goes on to say, and what bhikkhus is wrong livelihood? Scheming. Talking, hinting, belittling, and pursuing gain with gain. This is wrong livelihood. And what bhikkhus is right livelihood? Right li livelihood, I say, is twofold. There is right livelihood that is affected by taints, partaking of merit, ripening in the acquisitions. And there is right livelihood that is noble, taintless, supramundane, a factor of the path. And what bhikkhus is right livelihood that is affected by taints, partaking of merit, and, and the ripening in the acquisitions? Here, bhikkhus, a noble disciple abandons wrong livelihood and gains his living by way of right livelihood. This is right livelihood that is affected by the taints, partaking of merit, ripening in the acquisitions. And what bhikkhus is right livelihood that is noble, taintless, supramundane, and a factor of the path? The desisting from wrong livelihood, the abstaining, refraining, abstinence from it in one whose mind is noble, whose mind is taintless, who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path. This is right livelihood that is noble, not affected by the taints, not protecting of merit, and not in the ripening and the acquisitions, a factor of the noble path. One makes an effort to abandon wrong livelihood and to enter upon right livelihood. This is one's right effort. Mindfully, one abandons wrong livelihood. Mindfully, one enters upon and dwells in right livelihood. 
This is one's right mindfulness. Thus, these three states run and circle around right livelihood. That is to say, right view, right effort, and right mindfulness. So that's a little section that gives us a little bit of a better idea of what is wrong livelihood, at least, regarding scheming and uh, trying to get gain, pursuing gain with gain, all of that. So that's a little bit closer to understanding at least where right livelihood fits into the larger project of the Noble Eightfold Path. Again, it fits in as a kind of, as a, a step towards right mindfulness and then ultimately a step towards right samadhi or right concentration. And so on that note, I just want to say a few more things about the idea of, of livelihood, right livelihood, as it pertains to us moderns, as it pertains to the idea of a job or an occupation. So one of the things that I think you can definitely think about regarding right livelihood, whether you, um, in many ways, yeah, whether you are a monastic or whether you're a lay person or a householder, my feeling about all the reading I've done about right livelihood is that it has a lot to do with what, what I would call integrity. And by integrity, what I mean is sort of an integrated life. And so the idea of right livelihood, as I understand it, is that one's livelihood, what one is doing every day, and of course, what one is doing every day is very related to karma, right? Very related to action. And that was the step before this. So in thinking about the idea of right action and right action leading to or kind of snowballing into right livelihood, the idea of right livelihood is sort of like what you get up and do every day, again, in order to sustain yourself, in order to support yourself. And I think the idea of right livelihood here is that one's livelihood in a way needs to be integrated with the practice. In other words, you can't, you shouldn't in a way be off doing one thing for eight hours a day that has nothing to do with the practice. It has nothing, and, and, and actually even worse, if it's counter to the practice. So you do that for eight hours and then you come home and sort of then shift into your practice, doing some meditation or what have you. And I think the idea here is, is that if we are living a kind of divided life where we have our occupation, which is one thing, and then we have our practice, which is another thing. The idea here is, is that that's not going to be fully integrated, and so we're not going to get the most out of our practice. And so I have a few more uh, suttas to read from or to refer to regarding right livelihood, but insofar as we're trying to think of this as householders, I think that that's one way to think about right livelihood is does my occupation or my job or my livelihood sort of put me in one frame of mind that's not the same as the frame of mind I'm trying to be in when I'm practicing. So again, and it's not to say that, you know, one has to be meditating 24 hours a day or one needs to be practicing 24 hours a day. 
I think it's just a matter of whether there's a great divergence between one's occupation and one's practice in that sense. So on that note, I want to uh, do uh, just refer to two more sutras. So one of them is sort of often cited as a reference for what exactly is right livelihood. This is actually going to be coming from the Anguttara Nikaya. So this is the numerical discourses of the Buddha, um, a collection I don't cite from that often, but I will hear. And so this is actually going to be from, so the, if you don't know, the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses of the Buddha, is a collection of suttas, a collection of Pali suttas, that's divided into sections. Uh, it's divided into sections that are based on the lists of teachings. So you know that some teachings come in lists of threes, or sometimes lists of fours, or lists of fives, or lists of sixes. Well, this is from the section of the Book of Fives. So these are all teachings that the Buddha gave in fives, in lists of fives. And I'm reading from, in the Book of Fives, from the Anguttara Nikaya, Sutta number 177. A very, it's just one little paragraph, and this is a sutta on occupations, on trades, as it's called. Ambikus, a lay follower, should not engage in these five trades. What five? Trading in weapons, <laughs> trading in living beings, trading in meat, trading in intoxicants, and trading in poisons. A lay follower should not engage in these five trades. Okay, and that's that little sutta. And that little sutta lines up pretty well with what is, um, what I would say is normally defined as right livelihood. So in a general sense, right livelihood is often described as a livelihood that does not require one to break any of the precepts. And so the idea here is, is if you're a lay Buddhist practitioner and you've taken the five precepts against avoiding taking life, taking what is not given, um, false speech or harsh speech or any kind of bad speech, taking sexuality in that sense, and also the taking of intoxicants, the idea is that if, if your occupation requires you to do any of those things, or in other words, to break precepts, break vows, that's wrong livelihood. So that definition of right livelihood, which is to say that which is in line with precepts, that kind of matches up with the sutta that we just read, where the Buddha talks about these various trades that are not to be avoided by lay followers. So there's that. So that addresses the idea of right livelihood as it pertains to lay practitioners. But now I kind of want to introduce my last point regarding right livelihood, which is this is the 
the idea of right livelihood as it pertains to monastics. And um, the best, um, well, I wouldn't say it's the best, but a very, very good sutra that addresses the idea of right livelihood, although not quite explicitly, um, and also addresses the idea of being a renunciant or being a monastic. Um, for me, one of the best references for understanding right livelihood would actually be the sutta called the Samana Pala Sutta, uh, usually called the Fruits of the Homeless Life, or the Shramana Bala Sutra in Sanskrit. Um, so this is from the Diga Nikaya, the Long Discourses of the Buddha. This is sutra number Sutta number two in the Diga Nikaya, and this is a very long sutra that I've actually done other podcasts about. I've done other Dharma talks about this sutra, so I'm not going to go through it. I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but I want to refer you to this sutra because at the end of the day, when you read enough of the early uh, Pali tradition, right livelihood is usually defined as begging as being a shramana, a beggar, a bhikkhu. And that idea of how does one sustain oneself? How does one live each day? One survives, according to the early Buddhist tradition, the recommendation of right livelihood for monastics was to survive by begging for alms or begging for donations, begging for food. Um, it was, I believe, uh, allowable to glean, to glean food, meaning to like, you know, find fruit that had fallen on the ground or kind of uh, uh, things like that. But wrong livelihood, the wrong livelihood for monastics was defined as it was wrong to farm, to pick up sharp uh, sharp implements and dig into the ground. So doing any kind of uh, farming or working with that was prohibited. Of course, hunting and all of that was prohibited. But also, if you dig deeper into the Vinaya, into all the monastic rules, you, you find out even more about wrong livelihood. And that's the idea that these monks they weren't even supposed to engage in any kind of commerce. This is the rule against touching gold and silver, but there's also this prohibition against um, basically doing like fortune telling or performing miracles or being like kind of an entertainer, any kind of um, magic or um, magical performance like that was also prohibited because the idea was that you weren't supposed to get your donations for anything. Like it was not supposed to be this kind of um, exchange. It was truly supposed to just be generosity on the part of the donor and receiving on the part of the, the monastic in that sense. And so in other words, what is right livelihood? Uh, being a beggar. That's the right way to survive each day, at least according to the early, uh, what would be called Hinayana or the early Pali-based tradition. So that being the case, that for the most part, the right livelihood is to be a renunciant and a beggar. 
I refer you to this Samanapala Sutta, the fruits of the homeless life. And the reason why I really like this uh, sutta and I like to teach this sutta is it's about this king Ajatashatru. And the idea is, is that the king has, well, I mean, there's a, actually a big backstory to this sutra. It has to do with the fact that this king uh, Ajatashatru actually imprisoned and according to some sources, even murdered his own father in order to become the king. And he's kind of really worried about the karmic repercussions of having committed patricide in that sense. And so the sutra begins with this king, Ajatashatru, going to all of these different uh, renunciants, all of these different uh, enlightened people, and asking them, well, what are the fruits of what you're doing? In other words, like, what, what do people get out of what you're doing? And he eventually, the king eventually winds up going and talking to the Buddha and asking him, well, what are the, what's the, what are the benefits of doing what you're doing? And the king is ultimately, uh, you know, he's trying to figure out which of these enlightened leaders uh, he should listen to and and whose advice he should follow in order to alleviate his uh, karmic situation in that way. So this sutra is great because the, the Buddha begins to describe what is called the fruits or the benefits of being a beggar, of, of being a shramana, which is to say a renunciant. And again, I'm not going to read the whole thing verbatim in other Dharma talks. I've, I've read almost the whole sutra. But the idea here is, is that the Buddha walks the king through the entire step-by-step -step process of going from the unenlightened state of suffering to an enlightened state of no suffering. So uh, in this sutra, that's all the way to uh, the state of an arahat. And so not so much, you know, going, I don't want to go th again through this point by point, but the Buddha keeps pointing out these different uh, practices, right? These different stages. And then it eventually gets into the uh, practice of mindfulness, the development of the jhanas. For example, one gets into the first jhana and experiences great bliss, Sukha. And the Buddha turns to the king of Jatasatru and says, and that, that bliss that one receives upon entering the first jhana, that's a fruit of the homeless life. That's a benefit of this livelihood. In other words, if I were to connect it with this Dharma talk. And then he goes to the second jhana and the fruits of that and says, and that's a benefit of this homeless life. Third jhana, the fourth jhana, all the way up until eventually, and the sutra concludes with, and with mind concentrated, purified and cleansed, unblemished, free from impurities, malleable, workable, established, and having gained imperturbability, that one applies and directs their mind to the knowledge of the destruction of the taints, he knows as it really is, this is suffering. He knows as it really is, this is the origin of suffering. 
He knows as it really is, this is the cessation of suffering, and he knows as it really is, this is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And he knows as it really is, these are the taints, this is the origin of the taints, this is the cessation of the taints. This is the path leading to the cessation of the taints. And through this knowing and seeing, the mind is delivered from the corruption of sense desire and the corruption of becoming and from the corruption of ignorance, and the knowledge arises in him. This is deliverance. And he knows. Birth is finished. The holy life has been led. Done is what had to be done. There's nothing further here. Just as if in the midst of the mountains there were a pond, clear as a polished mirror, where a man with good eyesight standing on the bank could see oyster shells, gravel banks, and schools of fish on the move or stationary, and he might think, this pond is clear as a polished mirror. There are oyster shells. There are gravel banks. There are schools of fish. Just so, with mind concentrated, he knows. Birth is finished. The holy life has been led. Done is what had to be done. There's nothing further here. And the Buddha says to the king, This king is a fruit of the homeless life, visible here and now, which is more excellent and perfect than all the previous fruits. And, king, there is no fruit of the homeless life visible here and now that is more excellent and perfect than this. Okay, so I think that'll pretty much uh, conclude this Dharma talk on the idea or the path, step on the Noble Eightfold Path of Right Livelihood. And um, please stay tuned for part six when we talk about the idea of right effort. Thanks for tuning in.